the way the human mind operates no longer fits the context within which we live. To put that in even simpler terms, we live in minds that are still set up as if we were hunter-gatherers living in uh, environments where death was omnipresent, where our average lifespan was roughly 22 years old, where virtually any individual we could meet would probably be wanting to kill us, to take our resources, where it was most important just to stay alive long enough to reproduce the species. And in essence, that kind of mind is hypervigilant, constantly on the lookout for threats and opportunities. Uh, our brains have amygdalas that are the fight, flight, freeze section that are far, far too active given our present circumstances. We live in a city where on every block there is food available, tasteless food, but still food nonetheless, and um, most of us have shelter. We are, in terms of survival advantages, pretty well set up. The archaeologist Emily Webb of the University of West Ontario did hair sample analysis of Peruvian mummies that lived in grave situations where there was no food regularly available, where most people didn't have reliable shelter, where the threat of winters and of famines and diseases and were constant. And guess what? She found very little difference in the amount of cortisol, which is the stress hormone between them and us. What she said in the article is, while our society protects us from the extreme year-to-year -year differences in food availability, etc., as individuals we still experience a considerable amount of stress in our lives. In other words, despite all of the arrival of city-states, modern agriculture, the fact that we statistically, according to Steven Pinkar, live in the safest time to be a human being. Even though we have, uh, most of us will spend our entire lives without uh, having to outrace a bear, fight against another clan, where none of you will be eaten on your way home, I trust. If one of you were, it'd be kind of exciting to read that that had happened, but I really don't believe that that will. So we are all living in brains that are set up to survive the conditions that were going on for the bulk of human history but are not present any longer. That is because evolution takes a great... <coughs> it's much slower than human progress in terms of uh, making food and shelter available. Uh, 10,000 years is an evolution, a drop in the bucket. We still live with amygdalas that can activate us to hypervigilance, fighting and fight and fleeing and rapid breath and, and essentially defense responses that are only appropriate, would only have been appropriate for the way we lived tens of thousands of years ago. So that's the core. We're already living in brains that are set, that need to be updated to version 2.0, and that requires work. Perhaps because of that hypervigilance and that sense that we have to constantly be on edge looking for survival advantages outside of ourselves, looking for shelter, 
that were needlessly activated, needlessly caught up in survival, that it turns into three kinds of suffering. The word for suffering in the Buddha's time was called dukkha, and dukkha is a word that can't really be summarized in the, the simple translation of suffering. It means everything from the feeling that there's something missing, unsatisfactory, wrong, there's a general feeling of agitation, stress, unhappiness. The early language of Pali had very few words, so each word stood for a lot of different emotional settings. It's not like our language today where we each know the subtle differences between angst, maybe, and lamentation, and grief, and despair. Their language, one word, would cover a lot of ground. So the three kinds of suffering boil down to plain old dukkha, which the Buddha, the Buddha even sometimes helpfully calls dukkha-dukkha, just to emphasize how much dukkha there is to it. And this group of suffering is the inevitable crap of life that none of us can do anything about that we signed up for with a human birth. Well, most of us didn't sign up. In fact, your parents signed you up for dukkha dukkha when you were conceived. They probably didn't realize that they were signing you up or didn't want to think that they were signing you up for old age, sickness, death, loss, separation from people you love. But that's part of the, the ticket. Most of us only want to know about the good news. The Buddha was adamant that to live fully rounded life and to address suffering, we have to first understand it. And he said that in life, no matter how we live it, we're going to experience those things. Death, pain, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, born of separation from people we love. We're going to experience a lot of really painful stuff. As we'll see later on, it's our attempt to avoid these inevitables that cause us even more suffering than simply if we could be with these experiences and learn to hold them, process them, feel them, and then allow them to pass. So that's the first kind of suffering which we can do nothing about. No one, no philosopher, psychologist, spiritual teacher will ever be able to prevent you from experience loss, old age, sickness, death. It's just going to happen. Now the second two kinds of suffering are not inevitable. They actually can, we have a great deal of opportunity to address them. The second is Dukkha Viparanama, which means the disappointment that the things we latch on to don't provide us with lasting happiness and security. The Buddha said, the world offers no shelter. As an attempt to get around the suffering of death and loss and pain, most of us latch on to things. In my case, I'm always tempted, I must admit, by the shiny gadgets in the Apple window, which always present themselves as having the magic elixir to all of human happiness. They seem to glow. They're also shiny and streamlined, and there's a simplicity to them, and uh, absolutely none of them are worth the cost, but they look good, and they kind of glow in the store window, and then, of course, we get home and 
So we latch on to things. We latch on to rituals, to favorite places, and all of those things we latch on to for a sense of security eventually go away or disappoint us. My favorite Vietnamese restaurant just closed. My favorite Vietnamese restaurants are always closing. I've had five in like the last five years. They never, I don't know what the matter is with Vietnamese cuisine, why it can't last, but... Uh, <laughs> so, uh, every, we latch on to our favorite place for coffee, then the coffee doesn't taste the same, our favorite our favorite TV shows, our favorite clothing, our favorite anything, our favorite little place to sit by the water disappears. It all goes away. There's nothing lasting or secure in the world. And even if you did find something, as we'll see, it wouldn't suffice. As the Buddha said, the world isn't enough to satisfy that uh, attempt to escape the inevitable pain of life, the pains that happen in life. Finally, there's Dukkha Sankara. This is my favorite form of Dukkha. I have my favorite forms of suffering. Uh, it's, uh, dukkha Sankara is the stress and agitation of having a mind that is constantly filled with chatter. Sankara means the stuff, the thought, that we add on to experience. The idea is that life would sort of be like a documentary film without the voiceover until we add all that inner chatter that sort of helps us unpack and make sense of it all. And that, it's all born of the left hemisphere of the brain. It's all what's called, what one neuroscientist calls the interpreter. It's that little chatterer that basically helps us turn the complex barrage and parade of sensations and events of life into a story. Then I did this, then I did that, then that creepy person came, and then that person I had to deal with, and oh, what a day I had, you should, you wouldn't believe. I don't know why I turned into an, one of my old Jewish uncles when I do this thing. I don't know why that is, but, but uh, anyway... Uh, we have that inner voice that narrates and the interpreter gives the idea that there's this coherent self, which is our thought, and that everything that makes sense of the world is thought. But, but, you know, really, there's so much experience in life that we can't unpack and make sense of and turn into a story. So many times we go through breakups and difficult events, and there's no reason or rhyme. It doesn't fit into a nice idea. There's nothing we can learn from it and turn into a nice story to carry around. It's just, very often, there's a lot of disappointing experience. And that thinking part, Dukkha Sankara, pulls us away from simply feeling the emotional, the emotional activations of life and simply attending very often whenever we experience a painful emotion that we haven't yet learned to hold, the mind starts up with the chatter as a way to, one, uh, the left hemisphere and the interpreter really believes that if we think enough, we can solve everything. If we can think enough, we can never go through another breakup. We can never go through another unpleasant event. We can figure out how to interact with our families without being disappointed. We, <laughs> Good luck. 
we can we, we can go to work without having it be a crap show. Uh, we can we can somehow solve life. And of course, the whole point is that the cognition is essentially a distraction from the felt emotional experience, which most of us are particularly unhappy with experiencing. When we go through loneliness, we would prefer to even tell a story in our heads of, oh, I'll always be alone, than actually feel the loneliness. The story somehow feels safer. If we go through a breakup, oh, I'll never find someone. I'm just doomed to be one of those people that will never find love, rather than feel disappointment or sorrow in the body. So this need to always turn life into a story is very stressful, because it won't leave us alone. It won't ever shut up. The more we depend on it to unpack and make sense and give us a, a feeling of optimism that we can figure out life. In fact, all we're doing is just creating more and more cognition. And cognition is stressful. It uses up dopamine. It requires acetylcholine. Stresses out the body. Releases cortisol. It's actually stressful to spend one's entire life needing to constantly annotate experience. Now, all of these forms of suffering create different attempts to escape these sufferings, and these forms of escapist cravings only make more suffering. So you see the Buddha's original observation keeps on getting more and more complex and varied and more and more refined. So the three kinds of suffering give birth to three kinds of craving. And these forms of craving even add more suffering into the picture. The first kind of craving is called kamatana, and it's craving for sensual pleasures that will help us forget or distract us from the pains that we're experiencing. The pain of loss, the pain of uh, loneliness, the pain of emotional disappointments and frustrations, the pain of, uh, of uh, our favorite places going away, the, the, even the constant cognition, we will seek sensual pleasures to distract and to release dopamine, which makes us feel powerful and makes us feel less vulnerable. So what are these, these pleasures? Well, we seek and binge on food. We become caught up in intoxicants, shopping, TV, the full relationships of social media, and uh, uh, we become fixated on sex rather than intimacy, and so forth. There's a whole bunch of different things we binge on with the attempt to, I don't want to feel the suffering that I'm, that I'm already feeling. I want a way out. I don't want to emotionally connect, feel suffering in my body, process it. I want to I want the quick way out. And so the problem with these dopamine-based solutions, which are always based on acquiring something and consuming it, owning, shopping, the spending of the credit card, the shopping on Amazon. In fact, they found that more dopamine is released not in the actual purchase, but in the hunt. So if you look at the fMRI scan of somebody who's searching for a toaster on Amazon, 
they will actually be releasing more dopamine while they're looking through all the shiny objects than actually when they hit buy one, you know, buy, click buy, I don't know how it looks. Click this one shiny button and it's there in three days. What happens is when we consume a dopamine-related uh, substance or behavior, you get about 30 minutes of really pleasurable sensations of power. You figured it out. You have a godlike status. People love you. You're wonderful. It's all good. And then in about 30 minutes, you'll be stuck back with the same feelings that were there before we started the, the binging behavior or the distracting behavior. They also, uh, there's another problem with dopamine, which is called dopamine habituation. It takes more and more stimuli to release the same amount of dopamine. A study of businessmen found that the amount of dopamine released by somebody who does a $50,000 deal, to get that same high requires 100000 the next time, then 200000 then 400000 all this, by the way, if you'd like to read, read the studies, are in Jonathan Haidt and Sandra Leah Bomorski's work. There's a wonderful book called The Happiness Hypothesis, where he goes over all the studies about the hedonic treadmill and how trying to solve our unhappiness through accumulation or careers or money doesn't work. So, that's the first kind of craving that makes things worse because it just sets us up for more and more need for more and more stimuli, which makes us more and more busy, frantic, more and more consuming, and essentially more and more dissatisfied. The second is called Bhavatana. This is a very interesting observation by the Buddha, the idea that most of us also not only crave things, but we get hooked by the idea that there will be some time in the future where we'll get to be happy. I may not I don't have the requisite skills, money, furniture. I don't have the right person in my life. I don't have the right stuff. Where's my stuff? I've got to get that stuff before I can be happy. If I got the right stuff, then I could be happy. So happiness is over there in the future, and I've got to trudge to this crappy job, and I'm trading my present with the idea that at some point, 30 years down the line, I'll be able to retire to a beach, house or a lake house or a mountain house or some place better than this where I'll have a dog lapping about and, and grateful children and all the other fantasies that, that come along with this picture that somewhere in the future there's the perfect condition for happiness and I don't have the requisite, I don't have permission right now to be happy. It's, it's there. And this, of course, is one of the most cruel forms of uh, craving because it inculcates, and boy, my mother would be proud to hear me use the word inculcate in a, a, confidently in a talk. It would mean that her hard work was validated. Anyway, so it, but it reifies the idea that, uh, that we're missing something, that we have to acquire and accumulate and put off and suspend and not greet each day with the possibility that there will be moments and times where we'll be able to stop and put aside the need to do and put out fires and fix and solve and be caught up in busyness and we'll actually be able to turn to 
the actual experience of being alive and fully, like we did in the meditation, just drink in all the sensations available to us. I guarantee you from my work uh, in hospice um, and from doing hospice training that uh, most people there in hospice would wish that they have everything that they have what everybody in this room has right now and very often takes for granted. The fact that you have a body that's probably now not in over, racked with pain, that you have a degree of mobility that you can breathe without it being painful, that you can eat and digest food. And most of us take that for granted and we think that happiness has to wait for something else. And that's a really cruel thing to do to oneself. One of my close friends, was uh, she was killed a few months ago riding her bike uh, on a way to a job that she didn't love, that she wanted to quit. And so many of my friends after that used that as uh, permission to, to say, that's it, I'm done. I'm just prioritizing happiness. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I don't know any of them that regret the decision. And I don't believe that any of them ever will. I know that uh, my turning point in my life happened after 9-11. Somebody I knew was killed. I was watching it right in front of my eyes. There it was. and uh, I grew up here. So it had a lot of uh, traumatic quality to it. And... I was unable to go back and just find any meaning in the idea that my role at that time in my life was to make enough money to, so that I would have a future. I just gave that up. And I just wholeheartedly embraced the idea that Buddhist practice would be at the center of my life and living a, having work that uh, spoke to something that felt helpful to others. So the last form that we'll talk about tonight is uh, Vibhavatana. And this is the most interesting of the Buddha's uh, forms of craving. Vibhava is the opposite of craving for a future where everything will be sublime, for becoming something different. Vibhava is the craving for non-existence. And this is actually kind of interesting. The Buddha said that in addition to craving sensual pleasures as a way out from suffering and craving a future as a way out of suffering, many of us also crave a kind of numb or unconsciousness that many of us might be familiar with, with the use of certain narcotics that essentially render us completely unaware. Um, Some people during really painful events in life seek solace in sleep and complete unconsciousness. Uh, Very often, people who've been through traumas can constantly again and again return uh, to... Uh, depersonalized and dissociative states where they're no longer present and feeling anything. Um, Freud, in his famous 1920 
book, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, added to craving for sensory pleasure uh, another drive, which he called the death drive. And he said that all organisms not only seek pleasure as a way to release their cathartic needs, but also we all experience a primordial sense of just at times when we're overwhelmed with pain, overwhelmed with stress and suffering, overwhelmed with the constant mind that won't stop chattering, we crave to get to be done with it all. Um, and I certainly, from my own experience with drugs in the 1980s, am familiar with that that desire to essentially be rid of consciousness. And of course the, the saddest thing about this form of craving is that it really is a perversion of the human need to escape being stuck in the small contained self that can be so overwhelmed by pain and our rigid being caught up in our attachment to thought and autobiography and to figuring out and solving life keeps us so at odds with our body and our emotions and our feelings that it, and it makes it very easy for us to be overwhelmed and to not know how to hold pain and emotional disappointment, grief, sadness. The more we can't hold and be in the body, the more we align with thought, the more we can be actually overwhelmed and the more we can find the arising of emotions as frightening. And the more we live at odds with our emotion, the more we will be driven towards a romance with essentially ending it all. And one of the beautiful things that the Buddha said is that that's completely needless. We don't need that nihilistic embracing of unconsciousness and lack of feeling because if we simply learn how to disconnect from the thought, the severe allegiance to the thinking, figuring it out mind, if we can reconnect relationally with each other, disclose our emotions and find secure attachments, if we can simply learn to embrace the emotional body, that we create a container that's so much more spacious that there's nothing that's overwhelming. And there's no need to seek the shelter of numbness. So a nice balance uh, simply means just pulling the head a little bit from uh, uh, drifting in front of the chest. And that's simply done by just tilting your head slightly of the top of your head back like you're looking at a tall building or up at something in the sky. And just that simple maneuver can essentially allow us to prevent the, um, the sort of uh, slouching and bad alignment that causes pain and makes it difficult to connect with the body. But in general, just let what feels comfortable be your guide. So long as there's in general uh, a line from the head to the shoulders to the hips, that's a good indication 
the more balance there is, the easier it is to uh, maintain a posture that doesn't turn into something uh, like a chore to maintain. So closing the eyes and uh, we'll simply start with three breaths together just to uh, start the practice in unison. So a nice long in-breath through the nose and if you feel like it lifting your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears with your shoulders holding the in-breath an extra bead or two longer and then as we breathe out through the mouth dropping the shoulders and then pulling the shoulders back just a little bit so that you open up your chest and create a lot of space for the next in-breath and then for the second in-breath let's pull in the belly and just keep it tight 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 holding the breath and then as we breathe out a nice, soft, relaxed belly. And then for the third in-breath, feel invited to squinch and tighten any muscles you'd like, whether it's your toes, fists, face, buttocks, any other area in the body. Just tighten, hold, and then release. And really soften in a very indulgent and... Uh, caring way, begin to survey your body and see if there's anything that you would like to adjust. In my experience, the little niggling uh, issues that we find at first, like tight clothes or slightly tight uh, belts or something like that can, over the course of a set, become amplified. So you want to start out by just giving yourself permission to make everything as comfortable as you can. And then for the rest of the meditation, if you ever experience uh, a degree of numbness or pain in the legs or the lower back that you need to address, don't feel that you need to sit in a position that's causing you pain. The request, though, is to, before you move, ask yourself what would be the most unobtrusive, quiet way to reposition my body so that we don't disturb the people trying to be mindful next to us. So I'm going to be leading a spacious mind meditation which is based on a very ancient meditation called Tamiyata, very old, about 2,500 years old. So it's a very simple one. We're just going to start out with the breath as our anchor. And the 
key here is to not feel that the breath has to be by any means the only thing in your awareness. You just want to always know whether you're breathing in or breathing out or pausing in between breaths. So breathing in or breathing out and let the body breathe for you and see if you can find an area in the body where you can simply observe the expansion and contraction associated with inhalation and exhalation and the pause between breaths. One strategy, if it's difficult for you to maintain awareness of the sensations of breathing is just to count. So counting one on the in-breath and extend the in the mind the word one as long as the in-breath takes and then when we breathe out two extending two the entire length of the out-breath. Three on the next in, four on the next out and then when we get to five we start counting down, so five on the in, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So we're counting from one to five and back down. It's just one of many strategies. If at any point a thought comes along and kidnaps your awareness, creating as thoughts can, wonderful visuals or dramatic ideas. The key is to, when you become aware that you've been hijacked, to very simply feel good, not frustrated, but feel good that you're developing mindfulness. And then just simply in as kind and compassionate a way you can escort your awareness back to the breath. Again and again. At the very least, even if your mind drifts away again and again, if we've simply practiced being patient, gentle, appreciative, then just developing those qualities makes the meditation worthwhile.
So while keeping awareness of the breath, or the sensations of the breath and the body, at this point also add into awareness the sounds of the fan, the air conditioner, and any other sounds that are occurring. One way also to create a lot of spaciousness in the mind is to try to hear the most distant sound to the left, and then sweeping all the way across the most distant sound to the right. Creating, in essence, in the mind a kind of sonic horizon And while you have sound present, also keep just the sensation of knowing whether you're breathing in or breathing out. So this meditation will be an additive meditation. We're going to gradually, one by one, add more experience into awareness. So at this point, we're going to continue adding sensations. See if you can locate a contact sensation with the ground or your chair or whatever you're sitting on that corresponds with the lowest sensation in the body, the felt contact with the floor or chair, the tingling, vibrating, sensations of solidity or contact. And then feeling up through the body to the topmost sensation, which will be somewhat less distinct because your head is probably not contacting anything, so it might not be entirely clear where in terms of internal sensations, the head ends and the space above begins, but just allow that fuzziness to be part of the awareness. And then feeling the contact with clothes on the left arm, clothing on the back, and then clothing on the right arm, or at least 
the sensations associated with those parts, the rightmost and leftmost. Feeling into the front of the body where the sensations of muscles, the chest, the breath, and the space in front of the body interact. The mind keeps an awareness of the space around the body and the space behind. So this becomes a felt canvas. We can still be aware of the status of the breath, still be aware of sound, and now be aware of the inner space of the body. especially alert for any somatic emotions playing out in the belly, the chest, the throat, the face. All of our emotional lives have physical components. And adding into awareness the shifting levels of energy in the mind. And even an awareness of the thoughts floating around, sometimes trying to snag attention or subtly waiting. for their turn in the spotlight of attention. The key is to use the awareness of the breath, awareness of sound, awareness of body sensations and feelings, all that is present, the contact sensations, to keep the mind from essentially collapsing around the thought and dropping awareness of all those I've just listed. That's the way we get lost in thought. It's not so much that we 
are aware of thoughts, it's more that we abandon awareness of all the other sensory experience that's available. So you don't need to push away anything, you just need to keep the entire experiential field in awareness. So in a short period, I'm going to ring the bowl, and when that happens, it's an indication of the invitation to very slowly open the eyes. And in this practice, as in all, I think it's best to first look down at the ground in front and just integrate sight into awareness without allowing the mind to go off in search of people to look at or objects to take in. Just look at something at the ground that's not stationary, that is stationary and doesn't pull attention away from all the other sense ports that we've cultivated attention towards, such as the breath, the body, feelings, sounds, etc. So all we're doing is we're integrating sight into this rich awareness and see how much of the meditation you can bring with you into the rest of the evening and you still maintain some awareness of the breath and the body, contact sensations, so that we don't return to that mind that we arrived in, which was generally focused primarily on thought and sight. <laughs> 